and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 57th episode. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into our question and answer episode for today, we just want to put out a quick reminder that, you know, if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it on your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And you know, if you are ever interested in getting in contact with us regarding coaching, you can always search our website, which is www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which is also linked down in the description box below. And if you'd like to see us in video format, you can always check us out on YouTube. We're just under the name, The Bodybuilding Dietitians. All right, so kicking straight into this Q&A today, and I also want to put out a big Happy New Year to everyone. We are recording this on the 2nd of January, 2020. Pretty crazy first episode of the year, so uh, Jack, let's not disappoint and hope it's a good one, eh? <laughs> Awesome. So this question is, what should you know be looking at when trying to build muscle? Calories in versus calories out or calories surplus over maintenance calories? I'm getting confused as I'm in a calorie surplus over maintenance, but I'm slightly burning more calories than I consume on a daily basis. So I'm going to try and rephrase this uh, in a way that I'll understand it a bit better. So essentially the question asker is inquiring about the best way of building muscle, like whether you should be going for more calorie maintenance or a calorie surplus. And yeah, there's a lot of terminology here, like calories in versus calories out, a surplus, maintenance, um, burning more calories than you consume. So we'll start off with the latter part, which is burning more calories than you consume. If you are doing that, then technically you wouldn't be in a calorie surplus. It would be a calorie deficit. And I think it also depends on how you do track that expenditure as well. So for example, if you use a Fitbit, uh, we've said this in previous episodes, but we don't usually recommend using your Fitbit calories or any other sort of um, tracking data to compare against your intake or in trying to influence your intake drastically. So let's say if your Fitbit said you burn an extra 500 calories, we don't usually recommend adding on an extra 500 to your daily intake. So sure, Fitbit can be great for looking at a general trend of your activity. And because it is consistent, you'll see, yes, I have burnt more today than yesterday. But just because it's 50 calories more doesn't mean it's actually 50 calories more. So what we would recommend is judging it off your body weight. So if you're in a calorie surplus, yet your weight is going down, then you're not really in a calorie surplus. Sure, there are going to be some other things like food bulk, how many times you've been to the toilet and stuff like that. But yeah, in the long-term trend, if your weight is going up, you're in a surplus. If your weight's going down, you're in a deficit. If your weight is staying the same, you're in a maintenance. So that's probably the most general answer to this question is to look at your weight to determine. And in terms of what the most effective is for building muscle, it's undoubtedly going to be the calorie surplus over a maintenance calories. So we would recommend looking at your body weight trends. If it's staying the same or moving down, then you're just gonna to need to eat more to get you into a calorie surplus. Yeah, I think those are some really, really important points. And especially when it comes down to, you know, what should you be primarily focusing on when you're trying to build muscle? 
We know that if you are in a slight caloric surplus, that you are going to be in a more anabolic environment, you know, just within your body to actually optimize putting on more muscle tissue. That's not to say that, you know, it's impossible to put on muscle when you are in a calorie deficit, uh, because, you know, it certainly is, and you certainly can have some recomp, especially if you are quite new to training and it is a new training stimulus for you. But you know what, for most people, if you are trying to, you know, maximize your rate of gain, you do need to be in a slight caloric surplus, even if it's anywhere between 150 to maybe 300 calories above your maintenance calories. Because we have to remember when we're putting on muscle, you know, we're building new tissue, we're adding to our body. So we need more fuel for that. And yeah, exactly. When it comes down to, you know, calories in versus calories out or finding your maintenance calories, all of that stuff. Sometimes people do get confused because they'll be like, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm in a calorie surplus, but I'm losing weight. Well then, like Jack said, you're not in a calorie surplus, no matter how many calories you're consuming. Even if you're consuming 5,000 calories a day, if you are consistently losing weight day after day, and that's what your weekly trends are saying, you know, we can excuse the fact that no, it's not just changes in food bulk, it's not changes in fluid, it's changes in actual tissue weight. And even if it's 5,000 calories, you're still burning more than 5,000 calories, so you're in a calorie deficit in that case. Yeah, and something else I wanted to mention is that there's going to be a big difference uh, for some people in being in like a calorie maintenance or a calorie surplus on paper. So for example, using like the Schofield equation to determine whether it be your metabolic rate or your total daily energy expenditure or your um, daily requirements for food in order to gain or lose weight. So yeah, for example, Tierra and I would, I would say are both anomalies in that instance because if we applied that equation to us and then use the activity variable which multiplies your metabolic rate by a certain amount to determine your energy requirements, like we would probably get a number that's vastly lower than what we actually need to consume. Yeah, exactly. And if we were to just go off that number, we'd be like, no, 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 wait, but I'm at maintenance calories or, you know, I'm in a calorie surplus, but I'm still losing weight. You know, that's really kind of the downside to using an equation like that. So that's why when it comes out to, you know, figuring out how many calories you require, we just can't emphasize enough that, you know, it really, really needs to be tailored to you and you need to track your data. So I would recommend, you know, if you're trying to work out your maintenance calories, I would track what you're eating on average every single day for seven days straight. I would take your daily weigh-ins, you know, and if you are maintaining your weight, then I would take, you know, those total amount of calories, the total amount of macros you're eating across the week. I divide that by seven and I would say roughly that is probably your maintenance calories. Yeah, I think that's definitely the best way to go about it for most people. And we'll move on to the next question. Great. All right. So this next question says, what keeps you going when progress is good, but it isn't as drastic as some people's? Damn, what a good question. Yeah, this is a good one. And I think being in the world of social media now, it's very easy to compare yourself to other people. And I think there's more than one answer to this, of course. But 
for me personally, like being ultimately I bodybuild one because I love it, but two, because I am competitive as well and I compete competitively. So especially while I'm injured, I've been injured for the last few months. It is very easy to compare yourself to other people who aren't injured, watch them making all their great progress while you stay about the same or only improve slightly. So I can definitely resonate with this one. And if you are reminiscing about not making quite as much progress as someone else, bring it back to yourself for starters and examine your own training and nutrition. If you, for example, are getting like four to five hours of sleep a night, your nutrition isn't on point, you're not making consistent progress in the gym, then that would be, or you're not attending the gym consistently, then those would be variables to touch up. Um, because to be honest, if you're not nailing down on your own sort of variables, then should you really be comparing yourself to other people who have got everything in check? So that's probably a quite a mean way of putting it. But. I know, but you know, it's, it's kind of like tough love, but you got in this situation, you can't lie to yourself, guys. Like you have to be honest with yourself and you have to really say like, all right, am I really giving this everything? And if you're not, you have to accept that. And if you want to change, then maybe you got to put in a little bit more effort and treat this a little bit more as a priority. Obviously, we're not saying that the question answers in this situation, but I think that is an important point to emphasize to really, really look at, you know, like, how much are you really giving this? And yeah, the other side of the coin will be, again, a bit of tough love, I guess. But uh, let's say if you're, I don't know, in little athletics or you rec recreationally play football or something and comparing yourself to Messi, like one, there will always be people who, um, I guess are better than you. And one quote, not quote, but one saying that I like about bodybuilding is the only reason you came first because someone else better didn't turn up. And I think that's a very, very true statement all depends on which season you compete in. But at the end of the day, there's going to be people who can stare at a dumbbell and put on lean body mass. It's just in their genetics. And there are going to be people who find it a lot more difficult to make progress. And people do harp on a lot about genetics, but for this type of sport, it is very, very, very important. Yes, without a doubt. You can't deny that genetics play a huge role when it comes to bodybuilding. Yeah, I guess that would be my overview answer, like just focusing on your own progress, what you can do, because at the end of the day, if you're doing everything uh, that's in your power to make the best progress possible, then it's kind of pointless worrying about what other people are doing or their progress as well. Yeah, I know. You know, I couldn't agree with more with what you've said. And I really do think that comparison can be the thief of joy, especially in this day and age of social media, because, you know, you go online and you see these people with these incredible bodies, you know, and you're like, what the hell? I train my legs three times a week. Why don't my legs look like that? But guys, you just have to remember that everyone is at a different stage in their journey, you know, and there's probably people that you're looking up to, right? And you're comparing yourself to, and you're like, man, one day I just want to be like that, or I want to look like that, or I want to be as strong as him or her. But you have to remember that there's also probably people looking up to you and they're like, oh my God, I want to look like them. I want to be as strong as them. I want to be as dedicated and as healthy as them. So you have to remember that, you know, everyone kind of has a different benchmark and everyone, you know, is kind of comparing themselves to other people because everyone's at a different stage. But man, all I can recommend is just 
make sure that you are the hardest worker in the room. You know, you are nailing all of your variables and you know, you're not kidding yourself because if someone was to ask you, you know, could you optimize this in any other way possible? Hopefully you can say, no, you know, I'm paying attention to my nutrition. I'm training hard. I'm tracking my training. I'm recovering well. I'm sleeping well, you know, and if this is just my rate of gain and my rate of progress, then that's that. I can't do better than that. And I guess the last thing I'll touch on is please like don't compare yourself to other people who are much, much older than you. Okay. Like I know how easy it is, you know, if someone's like 20 years old, you know, and they're looking up to Miss Bikini Olympias or, you know, phenomenal athletes like Hattie Boydell and Lauren Simpson, who are at the top of their game for, you know, their respective divisions in physique sports. And obviously I know those are female competitors, but you know, males as well, either uh, natural bodybuilding or enhanced bodybuilding. Don't compare yourself to people who are literally on the top of the world, okay? Because they're probably one to two decades older than you. So yeah, don't get too caught up in that. And also remember that social media, especially, and you know, all of these magazine covers and everything you see on YouTube, Dude, it's a highlight reel, okay? And no matter how much someone shows you on their social media stories or their YouTube or their photos or whatever, unless you're like living with that person, you really don't know much about them. You don't know much about their story, what they're doing, what they're eating, how they're training, anything. So you really can't, you can't compare. You just can't. So focus on you, do your best. And you know, as long as you're doing your best, you just got to take what you get. Yeah, those are some great points. And I would even argue for some people that if you do compare yourself to a similar individual, so for example, if you're a junior bodybuilder, mainly maybe compare yourself to another junior bodybuilder or uh, a novice competitor, like That would be a great way of comparing your progress and maybe motivating you to do more if you see them working harder. So there's definitely a blurred line, I guess, or a gray area of what's good and what's bad um, and what works for the specific person. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's where social media influencers come in and uh, can influence you and motivate you to maybe, yeah, work a little bit harder and, you know, show you that, hey, it is possible to be more dedicated and, you know, maybe train five times a week instead of four and push it a little bit harder. And yeah, maybe you can get there too if they're in your same lane. All right. So moving on to this next question, this says, are there any effects of eating late after a late night session? How long should you wait before you go to sleep? So this is going to be quite an individual question and it'll mainly depend on if this is something you usually do. So if you usually work until maybe 5 or 6 p.m., you go home uh, and then you go to the gym at maybe like, I don't know, depending on what's late for you. So a late session for me would be 7 p.m. or something. You get home at 9 p.m., and then you need to eat and go to bed. If that's something you do regularly every day or like five days a week whenever you train, then there's no issues with that. However, there is, and there's no issues in the sense that it's not really going to impact how you digest that food or how you recover. However, if it's something you do maybe like once a week or if it's something you do infrequently or you had to do it, then first of all, I wouldn't really worry about it if it's something you do very infrequently. But second of all, 
uh, it may impact your sleeping patterns because there is some more research coming out about the biological clock. And if you do eat meals at different times than you're not used to, especially when sleep is involved, then this may potentially impact you. Yeah, absolutely right. I think that touches really nicely on, you know, circadian rhythms and this idea that our body does run on a biological clock. And, you know, every single organ and tissue in our body runs on a biological clock. And if you guys want to know more about circadian rhythms, I'd really recommend reading this article on the Stronger by Science website. It was written by Danny Lennon, who uh, hosts the podcast Sigma Nutrition, a lot of you would probably be aware of. But yeah, he wrote this phenomenal article on circadian rhythms and biological clocks in the body. And couldn't recommend reading that enough, but pretty much, you know, it would be the most optimal if you did get your body into a rhythm, into a routine, into a pattern where, you know, you have a regular sleep and wake cycle where you are training at the same time each day, where you are eating uh, meals at similar times each day, just so that, you know, you can really optimize that biological clock so everything does work in rhythm and everything does work in sync. But in saying that, if this does happen once in a blue moon, I would focus on the bigger picture, you know? So I would just make sure that across the entire day, you're still getting in enough calories, you know, you're still getting enough protein, enough carbohydrates, all that pre and post-workout nutrition would still apply and just make sure that you still do get a good night's sleep. So even if someone was to say like, oh, you know, you should always eat at least two hours before you fall asleep. If you get home at 10 p.m., you eat a meal and you're tired, you don't have to stay up till 12 or 12.30 in the morning. Like it's more optimal to fall asleep regardless if you have a belly full of food or not. So again, focus on the bigger picture. Yeah, and a good example of disruption to the circadian rhythm is trying to go to bed an hour or two earlier than you usually would. And because you haven't established this as a regular cycle or pattern, it's usually for most people going to be quite difficult to, let's say, go to bed at 7 p.m. instead of 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. instead of 10 p.m. Yeah, definitely. You know, like disruptions to your rhythm and disruptions to your routine, especially damn sleep routine. I know that, you know, a lot of shift workers would really, really struggle with that. And uh, yeah, it's it can be really tough on your body. So this next question, this actually ties in nicely with sleep as well. And I'm interested to hear Jack's answer. It says, what's the longest you've gone without sleep and why? Well, maybe I'm interested to hear your answer too. (laughs) I want you to go first. So mine's not really that exciting, but uh, back in first and second year of uni, they used to bring out uni results at midnight. So it was pretty standard procedure for most people to stay up and basically get their results. And yeah, I got my results and then I just ended up staying, staying up for the remainder of the, the night. So yeah. It's not very exciting. (laughs) What the hell? So you never had like any two day benders or anything like that? I think, well, you, you've with me for a few years now. (laughs) Oh man. So wait, but how, what? So you stayed up for how long? Like, cause that's the question. How many hours? Well, it would have been, um, the day of, and then the next day. So how many hours is that? An all nighter, whatever. How many hours that is? (laughs) 24? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
I was actually so thankful when they stopped doing that. They used to, yeah, release uni results like on the Wednesday at like 12 a.m. And Jesus, like you just be so anxious about like, oh my God, did I get a six or a seven? Nerd. But <laughs> yeah, staying up. But luckily, like I think it was our last two years of uni, they finally swapped it over to 7 a.m. the next morning. So thank God I um, was able to sleep through that night. Yeah, hopefully without nightmares. But <laughs> what was your experience? Uh, mine was actually first year uni as well. And I don't know, I just remember this day specifically because I was freaking wrecked the next day. But yeah, pretty much in short, you know, first year uni, I was always getting up really early, um, just like studying, eating, going to the gym. I just, I've always been a morning person. So I was up at like 4.30 in the morning but it was actually Halloween and I went out that night to the valley with my friends, um, you know, and we went to a few clubs and stuff and we went out for Halloween and we stayed out until like 3 a.m. And man, I didn't even drink, right? But I was just destroyed because I was so sleep deprived. So yeah, I think I finally got to bed at like maybe 3 or 3.30 the next morning. So that was close to 24 hours. And Jesus, I just remember the next day being like a zombie. I like, I woke up, you know, and I'd still wake up quite early. I think I woke up the next morning at like 6.30, just like, oh God, my head um, ate but some- But technically I was awake longer than you, so <laughs> yeah. I win. Well, I don't know, maybe I'm just weak then. I just can't handle sleep deprivation, but- uh. But yeah, like what, 23 hours, like the next day I was just like eating and then taking naps and eating and taking naps and like, Jesus, I was just fuzzy all day and oh, wow, like I can't describe like how good it felt to sleep that following night and just get back into routine. So yeah, sleep deprivation ain't good, man. Would not recommend. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we went to Thailand, we were... The day we got there and the day we got back, we were both very fuzzy due to sleep deprivation. Yeah, Jesus. I remember having that awful headache just because we were trying to sleep in like these really funky snooze lounges in the uh, Singapore airport. And <laughs> oh, man. OK, anyway, that's a story for another day. But all right. So let's move on to another question. So this one says, I'm having nearly five grams per kilogram of body weight of protein per day, which is a lot but I'm so small at only 38 kilograms and it's hard to hit 2000 calories per day on less protein. What do you think about this? I actually think this is a really interesting question. So yeah, this is a great question and to get straight into it about the protein, it is very unlikely that having five grams per kilo of protein per day is going to cause any detrimental effects, especially if you don't have any pre-existing history um, with kidney issues or any family history with kidney issues. And however, just because it is unlikely to be detrimental doesn't mean it's optimal or necessary. So you could have um, even two grams per kilo of protein a day, two to three, and still be uh, eating more than enough protein to accomplish your um, performance and training goals. Because protein, when you eat that in excess, it's um, utilized, it goes to the amino acid pool or it's used for other functions. And it is ultimately similar with carbohydrates as well. So 
carbohydrates that get stored as glycogen if they aren't stored as glycogen they'll go on undergo de novo lipogenesis and be stored as fat um, but we do have to remember that that's an energy intensive process and the body doesn't i guess to speak emotionally it doesn't really like to do that so it would prefer to utilize them as energy so especially when you're only eating 2,000 calories a day i would try to prioritize carbohydrates a bit more and lower your protein which ultimately is quite an easy process you just eat more carb dense foods and eat less protein dense foods so if you're eating a lot of animal products maybe even just say if you're eating like 200 grams of chicken a day like even just lower that to 150 if you're eating 300 grams of chobani yogurt lower that to 200 grams and increase your carb options whether they be like grains or things a little bit more energy uh, carb dense like jams or honey etc and ultimately i would just touch on fat by saying that you should have the minimum of fat um, i would probably say like the minimum technically is about 0.3 grams per kilo but i would try not to go that low if you don't have to so more like at least half a gram per kilo a day yeah i think this is such an interesting question because you know if you did take out the fact that this listener was you know between 38 to 48 kilograms someone who is eating 2000 calories per day and 200 grams of protein per day relative to their body weight you know that's not much of a concern it's only you know relative to their body weight now because it does turn out to be five grams per kilogram of body weight but like jack said you know it is quite unlikely that that actually is going to be an issue. And they have done long-term studies on bodybuilders, you know, men who are doing resistance training. I believe the study was like two years long. And this, you know, cohort of bodybuilders, they were eating upwards of four grams per kilogram of body weight of protein per day. I, I, I'm quite sure. And, you know, they were taking blood markers and everything and their health was perfectly fine, you know? But it also has been shown that, you know, like consuming upwards of 2 or 2.5 grams per kilogram of protein of body weight per day, it's not actually going to lead to greater muscle gain. And if you are consuming protein in excess, it is going to go through gluconeogenesis. And a lot of that protein is just going to be converted into glucose so that, you know, you can use that as a fuel source. So... Yeah, it is a tricky situation, but uh, just like Jack said, you know, I would just focus on slightly trying to reduce your protein intake and slightly trying to increase your carbohydrate intake and you should be good to go. But again, you know, if you are having blood tests or perhaps like urea is really high, you know, and your doctor was concerned about that, then yes, I would definitely, you know, have a greater discussion about this. You know, we're always kind of hesitant giving information and advice about this out on the podcast because sometimes, you know, given the special situation, it can be outside our scope. Yeah, this kind of goes without saying, but if you are consulting with a doctor, then what they say should always be a priority. If they do recommend that you consult with a dietitian, then that's awesome as well. And yeah, we think that dietitians are a great referral absolutely you know we do know the ins and outs of food that's for sure okay so this next question says the best way to build muscle as a beginner so this is quite a handy question and uh, i don't think we've even been asked this before but i certainly wish that i knew as much as i did now when i first started lifting because 
I probably would have made like three or four years progress in one year, but that's, that is what it is. Like, bro, you'd be a hundred kilograms by now. <laughs> I definitely would be, but yeah, it is what it is. And that's kind of the whole point of like going through something. There's that learning curve. Um, you gain more knowledge, but something that I would do is actually invest in a coach straight away. If you are serious about what you're doing and kind of rely on them because at that point, you're basically a sponge, you'll uptake all information and having someone with a good foundation of knowledge will really take you a long way because they'll be able to basically optimize everything for you, disregard all that bro science that pretty much every introductory lifter goes through. But if we're actually talking about recommendations, um, yeah, that would be number one. Then on in regards to training and nutrition, with nutrition, I'll just make sure that you're in, depending on your starting point, but make sure you're in a calorie surplus. Um, making sure you're having a decent amount of protein a day spread out between three to five different boluses. Um, I wouldn't really recommend counting your macros or energy, especially since a lot of beginner lifters usually start in their um, even early teens or mid teens, um, which, and I don't think it's particularly health, healthy to have to count macros from that age. In terms of training, uh, making sure you're training each body part at least twice a week, probably anywhere from two to four times a week and making sure you're progressively overloading in the gym and working everything equally. And I think if you follow that as a rough guide, then you'll be set really. Yeah, man, sometimes I wish like I was a beginner again because beginners, you know, because you're providing yourself with such a new stimulus, you do grow at a much faster rate compared to someone who's been doing this for 15 or 20 years, right? So as a beginner trainee, you know, as long as you apply the basic principles, as long as you're consistent hitting each muscle group twice per week, you know, and actually pushing yourself in the gym. So, you know, if something feels a little bit too easy, do a few more reps, increase the weight, track your progress, you know, just doing those little things, you know, can add up to big results in quite a short period of time, which is pretty freaking awesome. Uh, so yeah, that's all I can really, really say is just stay consistent and work hard and man, enjoy it. But that's the thing, you know, I feel like for some reason, we all just make stupid mistakes at the beginning and we're all on this like equal playing ground because for some reason, no matter how much knowledge is out there, I feel like the majority of people for like, you know, their first few years of getting into health and fitness and dabbling in things, you know, they do just go through these weird trends where even if they're consistent, they're consistently chopping and changing and doing mm. the wrong things and eating different ways, you know, and if they would have just stuck to the basics, you know, and if maybe Jack and I would have just stuck to the basics, I'm not saying, you know, we're like lying in the dirt right now. I think we're doing all right, but you know, like you definitely would have progressed at a faster rate, but luckily I do feel like we're on an equal playing field because it seems like everyone just goes through that phase where they just feel a little bit lost and they make quite a few mistakes. So I think about that sometimes too. I'm like, man, from the age of like 16, if I would have been working with a coach, if I would have been working with a sports dietitian, if I would have, you know, applied everything that I'm doing now at the age of 22, where would I be? And you know, that- It's like saying if I've never been injured, where would I be? Like I know, I know. And that thought, you know, it's enticing, but 
you just have to remember it is all about the journey and where you've come from, you know, and how much you've learned and all that stuff. And it is all part of it. So to be honest, I probably wouldn't change a thing. I'm, I'm happy everything that's happened to be where I am now. But um, yeah, getting back to the question, I think that's probably the best way to put on muscle as a beginner. Yeah, and we did actually hear about something interesting. I think it was from Mike Isretel. Um, He was quoting a study in one of the Revive Stronger podcasts, but he was actually saying that beginners should actually go closer to failure when they train, which you would think would be the opposite. Um, But they can actually go closer to failure because realistically, they don't really know their RPE scale and them going to failure is probably maybe more like six to seven out of 10 for an advanced lifter. Yeah, exactly. And you know, just like you said, some people used to think and we used to think that, oh no, you know, beginners, because it's such a new stimulus, they should steer clear away from failure, leave three to four reps in the tank. Whereas, you know, it's more advanced trainees where they might need to push a little bit closer to failure to really eke out those gains and really, really provide their muscles with that stimulus. But Yeah, you know, it's probably the other way around because we can all remember, you know, as a beginner lifter, whether you're on like a bench or a squat or a leg press or something, you know, and you're trying to do as many reps as you can, it feels so damn hard and so damn uncomfortable. And to a point, it might even feel a little bit painful and you don't actually know what you're truly capable of. So you might, you know, get 10 reps and that was the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. But, you know, you probably actually were capable of maybe doing 15 or maybe even 20 reps. So it might be actually more beneficial to try to really push yourself as a beginner because, you know, in total, you are lifting slightly lighter loads as well. And then, you know, advanced trainees are reaching a little bit closer to failure. Obviously, we're not telling you to fail. We don't want to see people lying, you know, under barbells on the bench or like lying on their back with a broken back in the squat rack or something. Please don't go to actual failure. We're just saying, you know, go like one or two reps left in the tank kind of thing. Keep yourself safe, but push yourself. There's a middle ground, you know. Yeah, I would hope that no one breaks their backs, but that's quite extreme. (laughs) We'll move on to the next question, though. And this one says, what was your first job? Ooh, okay. I like we're actually getting quite a few more personal questions in this episode. But man, my first legitimate job, I was actually a waitress in a pretty dodgy Thai restaurant (laughs) uh, for about man, it would have been five years, I believe, all the way from grade nine to the first year of uni. So yeah, I was, um, I was the Thai boat waitress and yeah, I knew that menu back to front and, um, could serve up a mean green chicken curry. Wow. I would have liked to be served by you, but (laughs) maybe not in grade nine, but first year uni. Oh, you should have tasted my (laughs) coconut rice. But my first proper job... It was a bit sketchy, wasn't it? (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Yeah, I worked at Sketches, which is a footwear store, uh, mainly catered for probably middle-aged women and older, uh, getting into the pensioner status. And, oh, sorry to anyone who buys Sketches who's listening, but actually it's quite popular for nurses, I think, because they are comfortable shoes, but they're they're not exactly Nike or Adidas, but... Anyway, yeah, I was putting on uh, shoes to elderly people's feet and um, watching them walk around, all that sort of stuff. 
Gosh, Jack, I don't know. For some reason, the man you are today, I just can't picture. How old were you? I was probably, I was 18, I think, 17 or 18. Okay, so at least you were of age. <laughs> mm, yes. And that didn't last too long, unsurprisingly. And then I actually moved to Optus. The Like I worked at a phone store, which was, yeah, pay was better. Uh, much better people there as well. And I enjoyed it a lot more. And I was actually there for almost two years before I decided to stop just due to uni and how hectic that was. Mm-hmm. And meeting Tierra. What? Oh, I hope I didn't make you quit your job. <laughs> no, I think that correlated right with us getting our PT degrees and then we started working at UQ Sport. Mm, yeah. And then I guess we worked there for a few years and now here we are working for ourselves. Okay, so we're going to finish on this last question for the day. And this one says, what supplements do you take? So, Jack, what's your sup regime? My sup stack, my mass gaining stack. <laughs> what's your shredding stack? Oh, oh, I <laughs> want to hear about your uh, mass gaining shack first. <laughs> no, sure. <laughs> my shack, you got a whole shack for these shops. <laughs> okay, so... These supplements I take are creatine, protein powder, which I don't really see as a supplement, more as a food, and caffeine pre-workout. That's about it, really. Pretty simple. What about you, Tierra? Yeah, I'm pretty much the exact same as you. Like, nothing too complicated. Creatine, protein powder, both like WPI, WPC, casein. Uh, I definitely take caffeine, but, you know, I usually have a coffee in the morning, and then Pre-workout, you know, I'll either have like an actual pre-workout mix or I actually take these capsules called pre-pumps, which basically are, they just have 100 milligrams of caffeine in each of them. And you know, the recommendations for caffeine are three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight about an hour before you exercise. So having uh, two of those gives me 200 milligrams of caffeine. And I've actually found that the benefit of actually taking a caffeine capsule or, you know, you could take like a no-dose pill or something is that it is standardized. You know, you know that there is that exact amount of caffeine in the capsule because when you are taking a pre-workout, you know, supplement, it is usually a proprietary blend. And even if on the back of the label, it says, you know, oh, per serving, it has 200 milligrams of caffeine, you know, three grams of creatine, whatever. You have to remember that there's probably like 10 or 20 different ingredients in that powder that are all mixed up. So you don't really know when you take a scoop or two, hey, I'm getting exactly 200 milligrams of caffeine. So I always like to specifically dose my caffeine just for performance reasons. And I do also take beetroot juice powder, concentrated beetroot juice powder. I just love it. You know, like I really do find that it does help with my performance. I get epic pumps, really helps with just vasodilation, you know, increasing time to exhaustion and uh, just reducing your perception of effort. So yeah, nothing too complicated. <laughs> Jack, would you say that um, those are some good massing and shredding stacks? Yeah, you need to stack big to sup big and get big. Oh my God, <laughs> whatever he said. <laughs> 
But yeah, I guess, you know, guys, we are affiliated with VPA Australia, which is a phenomenal supplement company. So they're incredibly generous to Jack and I. They do support this podcast. And uh, yeah, if you guys ever do want 15% off VPA Australia products, you can always use our little links or our code. So it's just either we won't take offense to whose you use, but it's either vpa.fit forward slash Jack or vpa.fit forward slash Tierra. And if you just type that into your search bar, it sends you to a web page where you can get 15% off all their products, which are awesome. We've been using those. Man, I've been using VPA since like 2012. So going on a good eight years now. So They are awesome. Couldn't recommend them enough. Super happy to be affiliated with them. All right. So Jack, we are coming up on time, but to finish off last question of the day, what did you learn? So unfortunately I have quite a sad fact that I learned this week and it's about the Australian bushfires. So for those of you who don't live in Australia, you you may have heard that we're suffering from some pretty bad bushfires at the moment, Uh, a lot worse than we usually have because Bushfires are pretty standard in Australia, but there's, of course, the argument of that these are due to climate change and not appropriately looking after our environment, combined with the lack of rainfall as well, which I think we're both completely on page with supporting the climate change advocate. But yeah, I think I saw some t- statistics that apparently half a billion um, animals have died in these bushfires and that the uh, surface area of these bushfires have encompassed like a very quite a large component of if they were to be um, scaled to the size of Europe. So it gives a good indication as to how serious these are and how many animals are dying as well. Yeah, it is absolutely tragic, you know, and it really, the news is all over the world pretty much saying that Australia is on fire. Yeah, it's really bad. And combined with the ridiculously high temperatures, fortunately in Brisbane, can't speak for many other areas, but we've fortunately had a decent amount of rain in the last week or so. But hopefully you've got something a bit more positive to say, Tiara. Ooh, I'll try my best. Um, I don't know if this is exactly positive, but it is something interesting that I learned. So Jack and I were, you know, on a long drive about a week ago, and we were listening to one of the podcasts from Stronger by Science. Awesome podcast channel. Again, couldn't recommend it enough. The guys are just so smart, Eric and Greg. But they were actually describing, you know, the reason why people use bands and chains during their, you know, training sessions. And, uh, you know, a lot of ex-phys people out there, people who have studied biomechanics, they'd probably already know this. Uh, But I just want to let anyone else who doesn't know pretty much know. So if you ever see anyone, you know, training with bands or chains, pretty much they're just trying to manipulate the resistance curve during that exercise. So pretty much what they're trying to do is make it where they are the strongest in the movement. They're trying to make it the heaviest and where they're the weakest in the movement, they're trying to make the load lighter. So as an example, imagine that you were doing a squat, right? And you're standing straight up. You've got the bar on your back and on either side of the end of the bar, you've got a chain hanging over the bar. So when you're standing up straight, you know, you're pretty much your strongest. You're able to load the most weight on your back and hold it there. But as you sink down into your squat, you know, and you get into that hole, that's where you would technically actually be the weakest. You wouldn't be able to hold the most amount of weight. 
but you can manipulate that resistance curve so that as you go down, the chains go down with you, more of that weight goes onto the ground, so you're technically not holding that weight anymore. And then as you rise up out of the hole, you know, it's, it's the lightest there, but as you push out of the movement, you know, and come back up to the top, it progressively gets heavier. So I just thought that was interesting, you know, pretty much just changing the resistance curve there. And the exact same thing goes for, you know, if you saw someone using like resistance bands on a leg press, obviously when their legs are straight and they're almost locked out, that's where they are their strongest. But as they bring their thighs toward their chest, you know, and then try to push back, that's where technically they are the weakest in that movement. So yeah, pretty interesting. And that's the reason why you see some people using bands and chains in the gym. So that wraps up today's podcast episode. Thank you for listening and hopefully you enjoyed some of the topics we talked about. As we said at the beginning, if you did enjoy, please remember to share it with your family and friends and repost it on Instagram, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you next week.